Big news for parents in Surrey. Did you hear a blended program is being introduced into that district? So kids in kindergarten through to grade seven will have access to online learning five mornings a week. Then in the afternoon, that same group of kids, kindergarten to grade seven, can opt for blended learning in multi-aged classrooms. And all of that will build to a gradual return for January 1st. That according to Surrey Superintendent Jordan Tinney. So there will be the option for students to come in face-to-face for at first one afternoon a week and then two and then three afternoons a week. And this is designed that hopefully when students get more comfortable coming to school that they will make a decision to return to school fully and there will be one opportunity to come back to school and that will be on January 1st. That is Surrey Superintendent Jordan Tinney. And as we get closer to when kids return to school on September 10th, Should we be making other concessions? If schools are going to be reopening, should other public indoor spaces be closing? Dr. Carolyn Colain is an SFU mathematics professor who's done extensive modeling on the COVID-19 virus. And she suggests that the right move is to close non-essential public spaces. So I'm talking about bars and nightclubs in order to more safely reopen schools. Dr. Colain, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So as of 3 p.m. today, we are going to get another update on BC's COVID-19 case numbers. And on Friday, BC recorded 124 more cases of COVID-19, a huge increase, setting a new single day record. With numbers like that, what does your modeling suggest case numbers could look like heading into this fall when schools reopen? So the modeling looks and the case reports look like exponential growth and have looked like that for weeks now. And I think... You know, 100 cases a day is manageable if it was going to stay 100 cases a day. So it's not just the numbers, it's the growth. And also, if you combine that with the fact that we know we're not testing every single case, and we've known that, of course, the whole time, we think we've been testing about 10, between 10 and 20 percent of the cases. So that means so the cases we know about, there's that additional you know, group of cases we don't know about. And that's what means it we could be seeing thousands of cases around the lower mainland uh, by the time schools open on the 10th. And you anticipate that a number of schools would experience COVID-19 cases basically as of day one. Right. So if you just run those numbers, uh, you get about five or six percent of elementaries and maybe 20 to 40, let's say 30 percent of high schools uh, having a case coming in. Of course, that's based on, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around those and we don't know those for sure. Uh, but those are pretty striking numbers. And that's just partly because even with, if the prevalence is low, if you put f- 1,500 people into the same building and you think, you know, what's the probability that all of them don't have COVID? You know, even if each one is low risk, you just have 1,500 people. So it just that risk just uh, piles on. So 5 to 6% of elementary schools and more than 30% of post-secondary schools could experience a COVID-19 case on the very first day of school. Right. And not all of those introductions would necessarily cause outbreaks. Also, there may be fewer. It, you know, we've already accounted for there are some, you know, the, there are less, uh, there's less COVID circulating in the really young age groups, but that could be even stronger than we accounted for. We don't really know. Hopefully, many of those uh, introduced cases would get better before they infect anyone else. Uh, but I think we have to be prepared that there will be some introductions from the community right away. And that happened in Germany. They had 41 out of 852 schools in Berlin. 
uh, had cases detected in the first couple of weeks. And again, those probably weren't cases coming from the school. They were coming to the school from the rest of the community. Uh, but then, of course, when schools are open and we have, you know, 20 or 25 kids in a room, uh, then, of course, there's the potential for transmission, especially among high school and also among staff. Uh, so I think that's what school boards are, are grappling with now and have grappled with through the summer is the you know things you're hearing about smaller class sizes. Fantastic idea. You know, mitigation of outbreaks, because we do think there will be outbreaks uh, coming in and, and throughout the fall, as especially if we don't get community transmission under control. Right. And that evolves the conversation then to how do we get community transmission under control is an option closing nightclubs and bars in anticipation of schools reopening. Is that the trade-off that we need to consider? So I think it's something we should consider. I think we know that we have a budget for high-risk contact and we can make high-risk contact in different ways. But if we if we make too much of it, then we see exponential growth in cases and we're we're already seeing that. So we know schools are really important. We know schools, um, damage has been done by having schools closed and we want to prioritize schools. Maybe schools are so important that in the lower mainland, we can move bars outside. Like Maybe we can do that. Maybe we can acknowledge that there's very low risk of outdoor transmission from what we can tell. It's much easier to keep your distance outdoors. You can spread out more than you can in a, in a crowded bar. And I shouldn't pick on bars because outbreaks have also been associated with other indoor close gatherings involving singing, talking, including, you know, religious services uh, in in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, and and maybe even here, I don't know the full list, um, and nightclubs and restaurants and indoor house parties and boats. And, you know, you've heard about all the things, even even retail, and, you know, they're all kind of some risk. But Mm -hmm. the highest risk things seem to be people densely together indoors for long periods, uh, in low ventilation. So if schools are really important, uh, maybe in the lower mainland, we could take the step to move bars outside or really try to get a handle on sites of community transmission before schools open. And also throughout the fall, recognizing that most of the people in the meetings deciding what's happening with schools wouldn't go to a 1,500-person conference that lasts all week right now in person in rooms full of 15 to 40 people. So if we want that to be happening and to be safe or as safe as possible, maybe we need to make some trade-offs. So if this is an option that the government seriously considers, this type of trade-off, when would be the right time to do that? What timeline are we looking at here? Yeah, so unfortunately, the right time would have really been three weeks ago um, and the next best time two weeks ago and then last week. Uh, This week at this point, uh, changing the community transmission, even if we stopped everything today, we would still have... You know, people don't recover the minute you change transmission. They So we might still have cases of COVID in the community on September 10th. And if we're not considering delaying, then um, those changes now, I think they would have a huge benefit, but they wouldn't prevent us from having to do the mitigation and detection of outbreaks in schools that we're going to have to do. Dr. Colane, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Since the border closure began, there is one small community on our doorstep that has been very negatively affected. Point Roberts. Point Roberts Fire Chief Chris Carlton has been a long-time petitioner, or has been, I should say, long-time petitioning both governments, the U.S. and the Canadian government, to allow exemptions for residents of his small community to cross the border, and for Canadians to cross the border as well, particularly those who have property in Point Roberts. You know, the community is is noticing, uh, especially on the aspect of mental health, it's starting to really weigh on people. 
and uh, that's what's going to become maybe a small humanitarian crisis. Relaxing the border restrictions that we currently have to allow open transit through Canada so we can get to our country and uh, transit to do shopping that we don't have uh, to get necessities of life. And I know that's been an issue with some Canadians that they're not allowed into Point Roberts, but they would be allowed at the same time to come down and help maintain and bring a little uh, commerce into uh, our economy. Christopher Carlton, the Point Roberts fire chief, certainly is not alone in his pleas. This weekend, about 40 residents from across Metro Vancouver gathered at the Point Roberts border crossing in protest. What do they all have in common? Well, they all have property south of the 49th parallel that they have not been able to access since the border closed. The border's been closed since March, and for many of them, that was the last time they were able to check on their properties. And border restrictions have been extended, as we know, until at least September 21st, so they won't be able to cross anytime soon. I think you and I both know there is very likely no way that the border is going to reopen after September 21st in the next short period of time anyways, at least in any type of large-scale way. So they'll be waiting, it seems, much longer to be able to visit those properties once again. Bob Canyon is a fellow who is a property owner in Point Roberts, and he joins us today to talk more about this. Bob, thanks for chatting with us. Hi, Nikki. Thank you. Now, were you uh, there for the, the rally at the Point Roberts border crossing this weekend? Yeah, we were there. Uh, there was approximately 40 to 50 Canadians uh, that showed up at the border. Uh, and it, it was not done as a, as a protest. Uh, basically, let's call it a frustration demonstration. We've been trying to get some reaction from the provincial government at all levels. Uh, we're not asking to have the border opened. Uh, we realize that's not going to happen. But uh, there is a list of uh, what's called essential people or essential services, property owners, whether it's homes, boats, or livestock, uh, should be allowed across the border to maintain those properties. Uh, Following all the COVID rules that are in place, there is no COVID on Point Roberts. There hasn't been. Um, The frustration of just not being able to look after your property, it's been going on for four months now. Uh, I know I've got bats in the house. Other people have lots of other issues. And all we're asking is that uh, a uh, designation of essential uh, be given to the property owners, Canadian property owners, allow us to go down there to look after the property. If we have to come back and and quarantine, that's uh, what we'll have to do. But we're asking access. And uh, we've fallen in line with the Americans on the other side. We've got, actually, we've had a... um, Petition to the government, over 3,500 Canadian signatures uh, requesting a minor change to the uh, essential designation. So that's where we are. Well, to me, making that exception for people who have property down in Point Roberts doesn't seem that unreasonable. Have you heard anything back from the government? Um, <laughs> in four Your months, laughter tells me no. <laughs> We've, we've got the standard, thank you very much for your letter. Uh, you know, somebody will contact you. The only contact we had uh, with any level of government at all was Joyce Murray's office did send a little letter saying they would get back to us. They were looking at it, and uh, that's all we've heard. We're just, it's total frustration. We, we've uh, basically contacted everyone from the prime minister's office to the president of the United States and uh, have had no replies. 
Well, I know even the fire chief, Chris Carlton, he sent a letter to Justin Trudeau and to Donald Trump saying, please, I know that we're small. We're just little Point Roberts, but we have a big issue here. I mean, he's talked about the mental health of people, American citizens in Point Roberts, who haven't been able to easily leave. uh, There's 1,200 Americans down there. Okay, if they're in Point Roberts, they want to go to Blaine. It's a 25-minute drive through Canada. The people that live in Blaine, if they want to go to Alaska, they can come through Canada, spend two to three days to get to Alaska, but a person on Point Roberts can't go to Blaine in 25 minutes. Doesn't make a lot of sense. And for Canadian citizens to be able to go down and check on their property, that makes sense to me. You have horses down there too, don't you? Well, we don't know, but uh, oh, okay. there are people that have boats in the marina. Uh, there are in the summertime and in the winter, there's 12,000 or 1,200 Americans. In the summer, there's 7,000 Canadians that come down there and spend the summers, own houses, uh, have property, have always had property. Our place is built in 1912. We've been there. My wife's family's been there since the 50s. Um, you know, they're old facilities. Things are falling apart. Uh, <laughs> it's it's not something that, and there's no one basically on Point Roberts that uh, has enough capacity to look after some of the things that have to be done. Mm-hmm. And pretty even... soon, winter's coming. Uh, everything that was opened up for the spring, all the water and everything else has to be shut off, uh, winterized. And, you know, how are we going to do that if we can't get through the border? Mm-hmm. On top of that, you were saying that you're worried about you have pests, bats at your place. Oh, yeah. We have bats. Other people have raccoons. Uh, the rats are proliferating down there. Um, you know, under normal circumstances, uh, even even be allowed to go down there for a day or two. Uh, and come back to Canada. Uh, even if we have to quarantine, at least let us in there to to look after our property. Have you had any phone contact with people who live in Point Roberts right now who've been able to give you an update on how your property is? Yes. Oh, yeah. There are there are people that that are there that live there. Uh, there there are actually some Americans that are getting there by by flying. There's a little grass airstrip. Um, but you know that's cost prohibitive for people. Uh, you know, you're, uh, why would I spend a thousand dollars to go to Seattle to fly to Bellingham to fly to Point Roberts when I can drive across the border and have the same thing happen in uh, five minutes? It, right, it just doesn't make sense. See, that is a, a crazy little loophole that I was reading about that's available. So you could, uh, particularly because you have dual citizenship, I believe, you can fly down to Seattle and then you can drive to another airport, catch a small plane and fly to Point Roberts, but you can't yeah. drive across the border yeah. at Point Roberts? Yeah. Well, and, and being a dual citizen doesn't matter. A Canadian can do that. A Canadian can fly today to Palm Springs. Uh, you know, you can go to Seattle. You can fly to Bellingham from uh, from Vancouver and then catch San Juan Airlines. Uh, there's ways to get there, but it's uh, totally economically unfeasible and frustrating, and it only operates one day a week. Somebody just opened a small ferry service to get the residents that are on Point Roberts access to Blaine. He's running a little boat across with 30 or 40 people once a week just just to get people off the point. Um, it, it just doesn't make and it, it Point Roberts is one of three places along the border. There's a little town up near Stewart, B.C., uh, which has eight or ten residents, which is in the same situation. And there's a town in New Brunswick 
Um, but nobody wants to pay any attention to them because we're all too small. And uh, but we got seven thousand voters here in in Canada. And and I tell you, um, when the next election comes up, the lack of of response from our provincial government and local uh, local people uh, is going to be remembered because this is a situation that doesn't need to exist. Uh, it's it doesn't make sense. You know, as the signs all said, if you saw the picture, it's going to show up in the Delta Optimist. There's a big sign that says common sense, and that's what's lacking. Have you seen the province's new back-to-school ad featuring Dr. Bonnie Henry? I saw it for the first time yesterday, actually, and then, of course, you see it time and time again after that. Now, in the ad, Dr. Henry, she acts as a teacher. So she's standing in front of a classroom of about, I think it's six to seven kids, and she's telling them what they can expect this fall. It's a very bright ad. It's very sunny. It features a kid washing their hands in the classroom sink. Here's what that ad sounds like. Going to school is so important, but school will look a bit different this year. We're going to wash our hands a lot. And you'll mostly be with the same group of teachers and friends. You will have to wear masks sometimes. And for some people, they'll wear them all the time. And if you feel sick, you'll have to stay home. The rules that we're putting in place are to help keep you safe at school. We all need to be kind, to be calm, and to be safe. It's a very pleasant-sounding ad, but it has not been well-received by all. Terry Mooring, who's the president of the BC Teachers Federation, said that she was saddened that Dr. Bonnie Henry was used in this ad. She said, and this is a quote, It's unfortunate, a really unrealistic depiction of what classrooms are going to look like. They won't have seven children in them. There are plenty of classrooms without a sink. Now, as a really interesting side note, when the government was asked why an unrealistic number of kids was featured in the ad, there was only six kids in the classroom. We know there's not going to be classrooms with only six kids in them, at least not commonly, come September. The government said, well, we did that when we filmed the commercial because we wanted it to be safe for those who were participating in the commercial. And of course, people who have been critics are going, well, wait a minute here. Does that mean that it's not going to be safe for when kids return back to school again? Because there will be classrooms with more than just simply six or seven kids in them. To discuss more about this ad, joining us is Stuart Points, the Associate Director, or rather Associate Dean, Faculty of Communications, Art and Technology, and Associate Professor in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University. Stuart, thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks so much. Now, this ad has been called misleading by some. Do you get that impression when you see this ad? You know, I've watched the ad a few times, and um, I I, I think actually it's unfair to say um, that it's entirely misleading. If you look at the ad, it's a relatively uh, medium shot, a medium long shot of Dr. Henry, and you see the children in the classroom, and there's no doubt there were fewer than a normal classroom of kids in the ad, but to say it's misleading and it misrepresents things, I think is um, uh, attempting to make a mountain out of a molehill. To be perfectly frank, and and I want to say honestly, I'm a big supporter of the BCTF and of teachers. I just think that in this instance, what we're seeing is uh, a level of anxiety raised about um, communication. When the real issues are our anxiety about schools and kids going back. And let's face it, we're all going to feel this for some time until we see what September is like, how children respond, what schools are like, and how families are set in that context. I don't think that anxiety is going to go away. 
Well, we have critics like the BC Teachers Federation watching this ad and saying, well, it's, it's unrealistic and it doesn't really represent what a classroom is truly going to look like. Do you think that when the average person watches that ad on TV, that they have those same thoughts, that those same ideas pop into their head? Or do they see it more as just an example of a classroom and these are some guidelines that can be expected in the fall? I absolutely think it's the latter. I mean, I, I have no doubt that some people are trying to um, find uh, um, problems with the representation that you see in the image. But I think for most families and for most parents, most children, most parents, let's talk about, I think they're looking for guidance and they're seeing that guidance in the commercial. They're seeing that it's a public service announcement. They're seeing that direction from the government to try to get ready with to what is forthcoming. We know that things are going to change and we're going to adjust to circumstances as they develop. This is a whole new situation. And it is absolutely imperative that schools um, return. We need it as a society. Children need it. Families need it. So there's going to be uncertainty and there's going to be shifts and turns. I think making this ad into such a significant piece of public debate is really missing the point. That's not really what's at stake here. What's at stake are, are there resources available if we need to change the alignment of classrooms? Are there um, uh, protocols available to help the kids who are most in need of school support? That's what really matters right now. Not the, if I can, if I can speak in my language as a, a professor, the semiotics of this advertisement are not really the crucial issue that's at stake right now. Do you think that the ad could have been more successful, though? Not saying that it's unsuccessful, but do you think it could have been more successful, perhaps avoided a bit more of this criticism if they had addressed those other issues that you discussed, those other concerns that parents have? Uh, maybe, you know, maybe, but I, I, I think that Dr. Henry is such a uh, trusted figure right now and, and deservedly so. I think her voice and presence in the classroom um, gives parents uh, a sense of um, security that, the, that, that the, the government's listening, that public health authorities are, are uh, attentive to what's going on. And that's really honestly what parents want to see. They want options. They want to know that the government is listening. They want to know that schools are preparing for the circumstances. And I don't think anybody, if we're absolutely honest, thinks that we know exactly what's going to come forward, what's going to happen. We need to be kind and responsible to each other. We need to respond to things as they change. And I, I want to suggest that that, in fact, is the message that the, the public service announcement shares with us. And we'd be much better um, um, taking that response rather than trying to make this issue of that ad a mountain, uh, a mountain uh, of public concern when I don't really think that's, that's where parents' attention is focused. Stuart Points, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks. Bye-bye. Well, whether or not you live in Burnaby, I'm sure you've heard about the Burnaby Mountain Gondola Project. It's exactly what it sounds like, a gondola that would go up and down Burnaby Mountain, largely serving students and staff at Simon Fraser University. So starting tomorrow, public consultation will begin on the Gondola Project. Does this mean that it will one day soon become a reality? If it does, the price tag won't be small. Depending on the route, it could cost up to $255 million to build. Joining us to discuss more is Jeff Busby, lead project at TransLink. Hi, Jeff. 
Hi, Nikki. Good to be with you. Thanks so much. I'm glad you could join us. Who are you hoping to speak to in this consultation project process? Well, we're, we're really interested in feedback from everyone who um, is either interested in, in using the gondola as a, a transportation alternative to get to SFU or university, or for those who live in the neighborhoods along the route, um, we have been given some uh, direction to study three different route options for how to connect SkyTrain with SFU, and uh, that's the, the focus of what we're looking for input on. So how will you be contacting people for this consultation process? Well, uh, like uh, all organizations, we've had to adapt a little bit to our current times, but we've put together a pretty robust uh, engagement program using our uh, online engagement tool at TransLink. So translink.ca slash gondola, lots of information on the proposed project and the route options and a short survey there where uh, folks can provide input on some of the trade-offs that we, we need to take into consideration as we try to identify a preferred option. What are some of those different options that are being proposed? Well, there are two SkyTrain stations that are relatively close to SFU, uh, Production Way University Station, where the existing bus service leaves from today, and Lake City Way to the west. So we're looking at three different uh, route options that would connect to those two stations. One's a direct route uh, straight up the mountain to SFU. Uh, The other two either swing to the east or west with what we call an angle station that would allow the gondola to change direction and continue uh, up the mountain. So there might be various stops on those two other routes? Um, we're really just looking at uh, the, the two-stop system, one at the top and the, and the bottom. The purpose of the angle stations is to allow us to avoid uh, the gondola going directly over residential properties, which was one of the uh, concerns that was raised in, in previous studies of the project. So we, we thought we would look at that uh, in, in more detail. And, and what we're trying to do is collect information and, and work very closely with the city of Burnaby, uh, because at the end of the day, we want the, the local jurisdiction to be supportive of the preferred route um, for the project. Yeah, I can imagine there'd be some residents unhappy if all of a sudden a gondola is soaring over their backyard on a regular basis. Well, we've, we've heard a, there's a number of considerations. We've heard some feedback from, from residents, including um, you know, needing more information about noise, privacy, safety of the project. We've actually retained uh, one of the suppliers, uh, global suppliers of these systems to help us identify what some of the options might be to uh, minimize some of those concerns. And uh, the reality is there's 20,000 of these uh, ropeway transit systems running in the world. Many of them are on resorts or, or ski resorts, but increasingly we're seeing lots of examples of them used to uh, in urban areas to address urban uh, challenges. So we think that uh, there's a lot of information that we can gain from other regions and, and start to really roll up our sleeves and address some of the concerns that have been raised to us in the past. It certainly is a creative solution to the problem of getting up to SFU. Can you talk about the, cons- the concerns that people have that even inspired the creation of this gondola project to begin with? Right. Well, the the idea of a gondola has been around for more than a decade, and and really it it comes from the the real success of transit in moving people to and from SFU. So 25,000 people a day are taking uh, bus transit up and down the mountain, and uh, that comes with its own challenges, especially uh, reliability, uh, traffic congestion, accidents, and and winter weather is is a particular challenge on Burnaby Mountain. So um, when we've looked at this project, we've identified that uh, having some Something that is separated from the road up above uh, is is a a good option uh, for this unique uh, corridor. 
for reliable transportation service. It also has the benefit of being uh, particularly sustainable for the environment. It's all electric. We can run the, the project with uh, very little carbon footprint. And once the project is up and running, it would uh, actually cost about 30% less than uh, the equivalent service on buses. So it helps with the, the long-term financial sustainability of TransLink as well. We have just a few seconds left, but do you have any idea of when the gondola could perhaps become a reality? Well, moving forward uh, requires that we do this planning work to identify the preferred route option. We'll be taking our recommendations on that to the City of Burnaby, hopefully at the end of this year or early next. And then whether to move forward with the project is is really a a choice that's made by the Mayor's Council, and they have to weigh all sorts of um, uh, priorities for uh, transit improvements across the region. Um, But as I said, we we think that this is a project that had some merit, and we should be doing the the good planning work with input from the community to understand these trade-offs on the route options. Jeff, Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, it's certainly disappointing news. The Vancouver Aquarium will be temporarily closing its doors to the public. It's disappointing news for us, the public, who might enjoy visiting the aquarium. It's disappointing to the 209 staff members who have lost their jobs as a result. And I imagine that, of course, it's certainly disappointing to our next guest, Lassie Gustafson, CEO and president of OceanWise, who joins us now. Lassie, thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. I wish that we were speaking to you under better circumstances. This is a sad and difficult day for Vancouver Aquarium. And I think for Vancouver, um, we are pausing the public programming after the Labor Weekend because, as we heard in the news, COVID is not going anywhere. Uh, And there is a... We've been, we were one of the first institutions in Vancouver who closed mid-March because we are a proactive and responsible organization. We've been open for the last two months and we've been able to provide a COVID-safe experience. And our guests have been happy with the new experience, but the number of visitors that we can allow into the aquarium today is just too low for us to cover our own costs. So, so we've unfortunately, we've been losing money every day that we've been open this summer. I, I was curious what happened because, you know, I thought that once the aquarium opened its doors again, you guys would finally have access to that revenue that you so badly needed. Well, running an aquarium is not cheap, uh, and, and the, the money you can ask for visitors is only so much you, you, what is an acceptable fee. So the numbers are not, um, we're not making ends meet, we're losing money. We've been losing millions and millions this, this, uh, this year. If we would continue uh, with business as usual, this organization will go bankrupt before Christmas. So what we're doing now is we, we're pausing the, the uh, pu- public programming, taking a step back, and now we need to rethink the uh, Aquarium. What does a pandemic-safe aquarium look like? How many visitors can you uh, how can you can you accept, and how can you make ends meet? And that's not unique, I think, for Vancouver. There's not a single aquarium in North America that's making enough money today. Uh, iconic uh, aquariums in in the U.S. like Monterey has been closed for months. So I think we are looking uh, looking ahead of us. We have a, a big creative process where the aquarium industry need to think differently uh, about how to how to run aquariums. You've been only able to open your doors to fewer people to be safe with COVID-19 guidelines. Have fewer people also been coming to the aquarium or has there been a large demand? No, we're down 80% of ticket sales compared to the same time last year, but that's not because people don't want to come here. It's because we have to, to, in order to be COVID safe, we have to limit the amount of visitors uh, in the aquarium We've been time sequencing people. We've been letting people in every 20 minutes to make sure that people can keep healthy distances. 
but the numbers of visitors that we can uh, that we can accept at the aquariums is just not enough to cover the operational costs. Right. So this isn't a matter of lowering the cost of tickets because it is expensive to go to the aquarium. So it's not a matter of lowering ticket costs in order to attract more people. No, and I think it, it, we've been almost sold out every every uh, every day here. And there's a massive, massive support in Vancouver and way beyond Vancouver for the aquarium. When we did our Save the Vancouver Aquarium campaign earlier this year, we raised money from 14,000 individuals, most of them, of course, in Western Canada, but from places so far away as Finland, Slovenia, and, and Japan has been reaching out to support the aquarium. So there's no doubt in my mind that the Vancouver Aquarium is a popular, popular visitor's attraction. Right now, however, uh, 2020 has been a hard year for the tourism industry. There's, I don't think there's a lot of tourism companies, profit or not-for-profit, that are doing well this year. With fear that the aquarium could close, you did do so much fundraising, which was thankfully successful through the course of the pandemic. But what happens now if it's closed to the public? How do you access the funding that you need to continue uh, to stay open in the future? So, so thanks to the generous support, not only from the public, but also both from provincial and federal government, we are still open. I mean, we're still alive as an organization. This, is, this support is what makes it possible for, act- for us to actually take this step back and reflect on how we can move, how we can go forward. Uh, We are buying time. We're still fighting bankruptcy. If we don't find a model so we can start making money reasonably soon, we're still in trouble. The support that we've been receiving from the public and from the government and for, for other actors like the Whitecaps has been fantastic. And it's been money well spent. We still have 70,000 animals here. They're not going anywhere. We're taking good care of them. We'll have 75 people working 24-7 to make sure that they get the care, the training, the social interaction and the veterinary services that they need and deserve. Uh, But it is a very, very tough year. Uh, And not only for Vancouver Aquarium, but clearly this this has been a decision that was, uh, how can I say it? It's really difficult, but it is the right one. I think uh, there will be more than one aquarium going bankrupt uh, in North America this year. And I think the ones who will survive are the ones who are taking the bull by the horn and and trying really hard to find out the way to run pandemic-safe visitors' attractions. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea of what a pandemic-safe visitor attraction could look like? I'm sure there's many options on the table, many different ideas that are being floated around, but could you give us an idea of of what the aquarium could look like, maybe just one specific example, when you do reopen? No, I think the most important thing is people will need to be able to keep distances. Even if, and, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen soon, even if we find a solution for the COVID virus, people will still want to keep a healthy distance. So I don't think we will be able to receive the million visitors a year that we are used to. So we need to find a way to attract visitors, allow them to stay uh, in, in healthy distance to each other, still have a good uh, experience, but cover the cost. So, as you said, we have many ideas. None of them are ready for, for public display yet because this is, this is going to be a tough exercise. I am confident that we will come back. Vancouver Aquarium's always been a leader. Since 1956, the next generation of aquariums has been born in Vancouver. It's an, an institution that's been able to transform and reinvent itself many, many times. I have no doubt that we'll be able to do it again. But I can't give you... Uh, uh, an answer now, what's it, what's it going to look like? I can't even tell you when we will, we will be able to open again. I imagine as, as you look to the future and you, you do look hopefully positively towards reopening, the recovery of the tourism industry must be on your mind as well. How much does tourism account for your revenue? 
So 65% of the visitors we would have under a normal year are not from Vancouver, are not from BC. They are tourists. So, so with the borders close to the south and very little cross-province uh, 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 province tourism, we are just not in a position to, to welcome enough visitors. So tourism and the comeback of tourism is going to be critical. But I also do think it is important for us to think more about how can, how can we be more attractive for the local communities? How can we continue to reinvent themselves so it's, it's interesting to come more than once? Most of our visitors come once, maybe twice a year. But maybe we need to think about becoming an, an organization that's worth coming to uh, a little bit more often if you're a local. Right. Now, will any of OceanWise's other programs be affected? The aquarium temporarily closed to the public as of September 7th, but OceanWise does a lot of other programs throughout British Columbia. Will those be affected at all? So OceanWise, the uh, conservation organization, uh, has a research program, an education program. We do conservation work. All that will continue because it's not depending on the gate. It's either funded by governments, by corporate partnership or by philanthropy. So those uh, projects, whether they are the Great Canadian Shoreline Cleanup, the Oceanwide Seafood Label, our projects up with the Inuit in the north, uh, or the educational program for kids that reaches half a million Canadians every year, it will all continue. We've also been able to move a lot of our education programs online, so we're actually reaching out to a much bigger audience now than we did before COVID, because once you're online, you have, we have, I think we have visitors to our website to, from more than 140 countries. Wow. So we're speaking with Lasse Gustafsson, president and CEO of OceanWise. How can people engage with you, uh, the general public, how can they engage with you online and moving forward? So we have a number of, of animal camps. Uh, I don't know if you know, but otters are amazing. Everybody loves otters. You encounter an otter once, you love otters forever. We have an otter <laughs> camp. All our otters here are rescues. We right now have Joey, who is a little rescue baby otter that has been with us just for, for a month or two. He's online. You can see him all the time. And we have many other webcams for, for where you can experience our animals, even if you can't be at the aquarium. And then, of course, uh, we will continue to be depending on, on the support from the communities. We are normally uh, on the, we're not for profit, but we're normally on the market. This year, we don't have a market. So we are, we are depending on the support from the public. So if you want to use our online boutique and buy your presents to your kids and your family and your friends, that'd be much appreciated if you want to donate even better. So there are many ways, but I would recommend the Autocamp. Lasse, what is one message that you would like people listening to this interview to hear today on what is a sad day, a day that's been announced there will be a temporary closing to the public of the Vancouver Aquarium? So obviously the, the, the most difficult part of this is, I mean, closing the aquarium is sad, but we know we will be able to open again. But, but telling people and 209 of them that there will be no jobs for them as we go forward, that's really, really, really difficult because this is not the right time to lose your job. It's, it's 2020. I think... If there's one global consensus, is can 2020 please be over? It's just been a horrible year for, for most of us. Uh, I think it is important for, for your listeners to understand that OceanWise will continue with our conservation work, with our science work, with our education, and the aquarium will come back. I hope we'll come back soon, I'll, and I know we'll come back stronger. It's going to be different. Um, but we are... A conservation organization we used to take on big challenges like overfishing pollution climate change the pandemic is just one more layer of really difficult things that we need to tackle 
Lasse Gustafsson, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you.